This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It is already too late. You have been sucked in. Do not even think about going to sleep. All right. um, A lot I want to get to. Obviously, uh, the big news is this hostage deal in uh, the Middle East. So we're going to talk with uh, Trita Parsi from the uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft coming up in uh, just a a few minutes. It is the the 60th anniversary of the um, John F. Kennedy assassination. And there's still a lot of interest in it. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. And there's people that believe very strongly, one way or another, that there was a conspiracy or there wasn't a conspiracy. So in our next hour, we are going to have two brilliant authors who each time each of them has come on this show, they've had me convinced one way or the other about this John F. Kennedy conspiracy theory. So we're going to get into that. But first, I have to mention what's going on with Elon Musk and Media Matters for America. I don't know if you've followed this. Um, First, for starters, I I don't want to make any bones about where I am on the issue of media matters for America. I I always try to be forthright with you about my biases, and you can judge for yourself whether, you know, whether you agree or disagree with what I'm saying. But I don't want you to think that I'm sneaking in commentary when I'm as an excuse for trying to push some propaganda or something. Media matters for America is, I I think, just a horrible group. It is a horrible, horrible entity. For starters, the one thing that you need to know about it is that it was founded by David Brock. Most of you probably remember who David Brock is. Some of you may not. David Brock sort of came onto the scene in the 1990s as an obsessive right-wing hater of Hillary Clinton. He would accuse Hillary Clinton of everything, stealing the Lindbergh baby, would file complaints, wrote books, launched investigations. He launched a whole cottage industry over being obsessed with Hillary Clinton and telling everybody what how terrible she was, how terrible her husband was. The guy was just obsessed. Then in the waning days of the Clinton administration, seemingly really without any rationale or reason whatsoever. The guy turns on a dime, and immediately he goes from being obsessed with Hillary Clinton negatively to being obsessed with her positively, treating her almost like a deity, and still obsessed with her, 
but saying she can do no wrong, issues a public apology for everything that he's ever said about her, everything that he ever did, issues an apology to her. And really, for the better part of the last 23 years, he has been one of the leading Democratic operatives in the whole country. The one thing that he's been able to do, both when he was a conservative and now that he's a liberal, is raise money. And you got to hand it to him. I don't know how he does it, but he was able in the 90s to find every anti-Clinton donor in the country and get him to uh, get get money from them. Now he finds every Trump-hating donor in the country and gets all these left-leaning donors to give him money. And the byproduct of that is Media Matters for America. Which, uh, so David Brock, I don't have a, a high opinion of. I think he's completely deceitful and amoral. What is going on here with Twitter? And uh, I got into this a little bit with Jeffrey Lickman yesterday. So Elon Musk has, you know, been accused of anti-Semitism and saying some anti-Semitic things. He was criticized not just by Media Matters for America, but by the uh, Anti-Defamation League as well. And then uh, Elon Musk kind of turns around and says, not only am I not anti-Semitic, but he comes out and says, no longer on Twitter will you be allowed to use the terms from the river to the sea or decolonization. And uh, the Anti-Defamation League comes out and says, the, the very same guy they were criticizing just a day or two before, they say, oh, thank you, Elon Musk. Yes, good, good job here. We'll pat you on the head and uh, we'll, we'll approve you. And that's kind of how a lot of the ADL does business. So... Media Matters for America exists just to attack anything they think is, I don't even say conservative, anything they think is not liberal. Talk radio has been in their crosshairs for years. Um, Fox News Channel has been in their crosshairs for years. In fact, any advertisers that support talk radio or Fox News Channel, they've been all over My Pillow and Mike Lindell. They've been all over Balance of Nature for years. They're obsessive about destroying anything in the media that deviates from uh, liberal orthodoxy. Now, that's fine. That's their right. God bless them. This is America. People should be able to say whatever they want. I'm a free speech fundamentalist. You know that. But my problem with what they've been doing and how they've been treating uh, treated by the media is when they first launched, they were always identified as a left-leaning group. But if you listen to some of the articles quoting or read some of the articles quoting Media Matters for America in the Elon Musk issue or any of the other issues related to balance of nature or anything like that, they treat Media Matters for America almost like it's this objective watchdog group, like it's this watchdog group launched from a university or something or some uh, well-respected, well-regarded think tank. No. Every media entity that refers to Media Matters for America should make clear that Media Matters has a political axe to grind. And everything that's on their site, every press release they put out, every report they put out, every statement they put out, should be viewed through that lens. Not as an objective watchdog of honest journalism or honest media or anything like that, but as someone that is opposed to anything that's non-liberal. So what they did with Elon Musk was really rotten and really deceitful. And that's why I'm glad Elon Musk has uh, has sued them in a lawsuit filed in federal court yesterday in uh, in Texas. So what they did was Media Matters to for America reaches out to every major advertiser on Twitter, X. 
they uh, reach out to Apple. They reach out to IBM. In whoever was spending the most money advertising on X, that's who they reached out to and said, hey, you know, the platform that you're supporting, your advertising dollars, they are going to support anti-Semitism and hate speech. Now, first of all, most corporations, that's all you have to tell them. That's all you have to tell them is that uh, there is even a whiff that they might be supporting Nazism and things of that nature. But what they did was incredibly deceitful. They reached out to all these advertisers. And, oh, by the way, one by one, they all dropped, costing Musk millions, maybe tens of millions. Not that he needs the money, but look, millions of dollars are millions of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars are tens of millions of dollars. So Elon Musk, um, or excuse me, Media Matters sends screenshots to all these advertisers of their ads next to hate speech. The kind of things that Nazis might say, the kind of things that disciples of Hitler might say, the kind of things that real anti-Semites might say, just vile, reprehensible text and videos with the ads of Apple, IBM, all these corporations next to them. And you say, you see, look, that's your ad next to this hate speech. You can't have that. And they say, well, that's not what we were promised. We were promised that wouldn't happen. And they all canceled their advertising. But what they did, what Media Matters did, was totally deceitful. What they did was they went and sought out the hate speech. They went and looked for tweets that almost nobody had seen saying reprehensible things. They found them. And there was no ad next to it. No ad for any of these major advertisers anyway. And so once they found these ads, the people that work for Media Matters just kept refreshing and refreshing and refreshing the page until eventually they got an ad with one of these images and you you see the logo of the company that's advertising next to this hate speech. But you see in the tweet itself, you could see how many views there are. And you could see, in some cases, there's one view, two views, three views. So the Twitter algorithm was actually keeping this hate speech from being seen by people. Now, we can have a discussion about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But the algorithm was keeping the hate speech from popping up in people's feeds. You actively had to go out and look for it. And then, even when you found it, it wasn't as if this... Um, you know, these images were next to them. You have to keep hitting refresh and refresh and refresh until eventually you get the image that you're looking for. So um, this lawsuit contends that the investigation that, uh, that X did was that Media Matters used accounts for its research that bypassed X's ad filter for new users and followed only accounts known to produce extreme fringe content. And so that's that's what they did. They created accounts just to follow anti-Semites and because uh, I guess there's some loophole that allowed them to bypass the ad filters, they were able to eventually get to the point where this toxic imagery was beside the um, 
the offending tweet or, the, or beside the ad. So last week, Media Matters publishes a report alleging that X had run ads for major con- companies next to neo-Nazi posts, promote, prompting companies like Apple, IBM, Disney to pull advertising from the site. Then a couple days later, Musk, the richest person in the world, not somebody you want to mess with in a courtroom, announces that he's going to form uh, file a thermonuclear lawsuit against Media Matters. And on Monday, that is precisely what he did. I, uh, I Again, I don't like to root for anybody to get shut down. These people that Media Matters are such a cancer on public discourse and free speech. And it has nothing to do with the fact that they're liberal. Some of my favorite commentators, people, and media outlets are liberal. It has to do with the fact that they're deceptive. And what they do is, I think, um, a form of extortion. They go to advertisers that are supporting some commentary, whether it's talk radio, whatever else, and they say, if you don't pull your ads, we're going to boycott you. To me, that's not what political organizations do. That's not what media watchdogs do. That's not what people that believe in free speech do. That's what the mob does. So I am wishing Elon Musk the best of luck with this lawsuit. You want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute of Responsible Statecraft joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, all eyes are 
very much on the Middle East. It will be the subject of conversation for a lot of people as they gather around the Thanksgiving table on Thursday. This week, there does seem to be a glimmer of hope. Looks like uh, there could be as many as 50 hostages released by Hamas. And it looks like there could be a little bit of a break from the bombardment, the military bombardment of Gaza, which will allow some uh, innocent Palestinians to get things like food, water, medicine, gasoline, etc. But there's also a lot of concern about the future. One of the areas that I'm very much concerned about is the fact that we now have many serious American political figures not only directly blaming Iran for this Hamas attack, but actually saying we need to pursue military action against Iran. Somebody that has uh, studied the Middle East for many years. He is an expert in every sense of the word and has uh, been very outspoken in terms of the need for things like diplomacy, not just in the Middle East, but in all sorts of areas of the world, is uh, Trita Parsi. He's an award-winning author and uh, the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Trita, it's great to talk to you again. Likewise. Thank you for having me again. Trita, what's your understanding about where things stand now with respect to this negotiation of hostages being released in exchange for a ceasefire? So there has been a deal in the making for quite some time. It took the Israeli government nine hours to uh, at a cabinet meeting before they finally agreed to it. Um, and as you mentioned, it will get uh, 50 and potentially additional 10 uh, hostages released, which is obviously tremendously positive. You can just imagine the horrors their families have gone through, as well as the horrors that the Palestinians are going through in, in Gaza right now. And there will be uh, a, a pause in the bombardment of Gaza. The question is what happens afterwards? Because there's, of course, concerns that as soon as all of the hostages are out, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza will become even more intensified. And one of the things that really differentiates this conflict from all of the previous conflicts. We talk about Ukraine, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, is the number of children that are being killed on a daily basis. There's about 180 children dying every day in Gaza in this bombardment. As point of comparison, about 650 or so children were killed in Ukraine in 20 months. We're talking about 180 children a day in Gaza for the last six weeks. And that's part of the reason why an end to the bombardment is crucial, because the amount of Hamas fighters that are being taken out is a very, very small proportion of the people being killed in total. So the number of civilians being killed is, again, uh, astounding compared to all of the previous conflicts of the past uh, couple of decades. Now, the fact that this hostage release in exchange for a ceasefire is happening, it looks like the Hamas is an entity that can be negotiated with. If you look at what we were hearing about the barbarism of the Hamas attack on October 7th and how they were being portrayed, and I think many would say rightly so, as these um, animals that are just modern-day Nazis, that are terrorists that can't be negotiated with, that doesn't seem to uh, jive with what we're seeing now. From your perspective, is Hamas a uh, modern-day Nazi terrorist organization that must be eradicated, or is this an entity that can be negotiated with? Well, first of all, they can be negotiated with, and they have been negotiated with on numerous occasions in the past. And I think it's also very important to keep in mind 
that Israel itself was helping the creation mm. of Hamas back in the 1980s because they wanted to split the Palestinians back then. They viewed the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, headed by Yasser Arafat as a bigger threat and as a result was encouraging and helping the creation of Hamas. Now, that doesn't change the fact that what Hamas has done is completely horrible and unacceptable. But I think there's a very dangerous tendency we have to think that as soon as an entity has done something um, as horrific as what Hamas did on October 7th, that means that negotiations have no utility and should not be pursued. If that's the course we take, then the only option left is war. Now, we have seen what that has done um, in Gaza. And one of the things that we have experienced ourselves is that with all of the bombardment of Iraq, of Afghanistan, we rather quickly came to realize that for every person that was killed, two more terrorists were created. Uh, I mean, this is literally what Donald Rumsfeld said in one of his internal memos at the Pentagon that later on got leaked. So the strategy that Israel is pursuing in Gaza, even if it manages to take out the majority, uh, the overwhelming majority of the top echelons of Hamas, does not mean that the problem has been resolved because the number of deaths is going to further radicalize the population over there, as well as Hamas's actions against Israel has radicalized the way the Israelis are looking at this. So the belief that this can be a problem that can be bombed away, over and over again, we are coming to the, uh, we have seen how that is actually not the case, but on the contrary, it just makes matters worse. One of the things that um, I'm sure we'll see once this hostage release for, um, you know, for ceasefire deal goes forward is both sides try to spin this as a public relations victory. Uh, Israel is going to say, look, you know, look at all the pains that we're taking not to kill innocent people. Hamas is going to say, look at all these innocent people we're releasing from captivity. I was listening to another radio program and uh, Admiral Stavridis, former uh, Supreme Allied commander of NATO, he made the point that he thinks Israel is winning the war on a tactical level, but they're losing it on a public relations level. Do you agree with that? Do you think that the Palestinians are actually winning the narrative uh, over the course of the last month? Uh, I think that's quite clear, not just in the United States, but certainly internationally. Take a look at the poll numbers. Despite of the horrific things that Hamas did, uh, the response of the Israelis have been so disproportionate that 68% of the American public has favored uh, uh, a ceasefire. The uh, uh, polling numbers of Biden has plummeted, and to a very large extent, because of his refusal to push for a ceasefire, as well as the U.S.'s veto against a humanitarian pause at the U.N. in the Security Council a month ago. So, um, and then internationally, even further, I mean, we've seen two million people protesting in Indonesia, uh, several hundred thousand in England, uh, several thousand, tens of thousands in Mexico City and in other countries uh, in Latin America. And that is not because they're in favor of Hamas in any way, shape or form, but because we have seen this conflict now for 75 years and we know that there's no way of bombing yourself out of it. And, and, and seeing the disproportionate amount of violence that has been used, a very, very large number of children being killed, that ultimately really backfires on Israel. And frankly, it has backfired on the United States for supporting this. The United States is at the UN as isolated on this issue of Gaza and the ceasefire in Gaza as Russia was on its illegal invasion of Ukraine. 
that is not a good position for the United States to be in. You mentioned, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Trita Parsi. He's the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You mentioned the the term disproportionate response on the part of the Israelis. Uh, Whenever proportionality gets mentioned, a lot of our listeners, they just go crazy because uh, the, the whole idea of proportionality seems to almost ignore the fact that the whole idea behind going after Hamas is to destroy their ability to carry carry out a terrorist attack like this again. And a lot of folks that uh, will defend the Israeli response, they point out the, uh, I know it sounds silly the way I'm about to put the, the, the term, but they'll defend the uh, humane nature in which Israel carries out these attacks. They point out the fact that they issue evacuation orders. Uh, they point out the fact that there's leafleting that takes place encouraging innocent people People to get out of the way, which is a lot more than Hamas did for the people that they slaughtered on October 7th. So I guess my question is, in for people that kind of bristle at that term proportionality, what would a proportional response from Israel actually look like? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that it's not Hamas's action that sets the standards Certainly, and, and gladly we should be happy that it isn't. That sets the standard for this. It's international law that sets the standards. These different measures that you mentioned that the Israelis say that they're doing, that's actually part of that very same propaganda war that you mentioned earlier on. If those measures were actually true, we would not have a situation in which 13,000-plus people have been killed, more than uh, roughly half of them children. It would simply not be the case. Yes, leaflets have been dropped telling people to go to the south, and then they bombed the south where people had fled, or uh, attacking hospitals, etc. Even if, which has not been proven, that uh, uh, there was a command center of Hamas at the hospital, which again has not been proven on the contrary. Um, uh, the Israelis went in there and, and claimed to have found a couple of uh, Kalashnikovs. That's not a command center. Even if that was the case, you are still not allowed to take out the hospitals in the matter that Israel has. That's part of the reason why the word disproportionate is being used. Now, if this actually was affecting Hamas, it would be a bit of a different story. The reality is that it is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly affecting civilians. Again, I want to go back to the earlier statistics. We don't have any other war recently in which the number of people being killed uh, in this proportion are civilians. And, and again, if all of these different measures and humanity, humane measures had been followed, it simply would not be the case then that we would have these proportions and these numbers. One of the things that President Biden mentioned when he went to Israel to show solidarity with uh, the Israelis was that some of the things that Hamas, Hamas is doing is on par, or uh, I'm paraphrasing here, even worse than what ISIS is doing. Um, from your study of Hamas and the Middle East and terrorist groups in the region in general, is Hamas on par with the Islamic State? Are they worse, as President Biden seemed to suggest, or are they better, if that's possible? It's not about a better or worse. They're very different. First of all, I think it's really important to Note, and this is something that I think that Biden has done a huge disfavor in the manner that he's talking about this. ISIS was uh, followed the universalist ideology. It attacked the United States. It was creating an, uh, an own country and massacring people far, far greater numbers 
than Hamas has done in Israel, far greater numbers. And it was uh, seeking to establish, you know, essentially a global empire. And of course, he didn't have the capacity to do so. But he had an ideology that was uh, that was setting that out. Hamas is a nationalist organization that is create that is seeking um, um, uh, Palestinian uh, statehood, but of course, through means that are completely unacceptable. But that's a very, very different type of an organization. Um, and while they're both committing atrocities. To say that they're worse than ISIS, when ISIS was literally killing more than 100,000 people, tells you of how unanchored some of the conversations about this has been in the United States. And I think Biden himself has actually done a huge disfavor in the matter that he's talking about this and how he has acted, frankly. Because the other aspect of this that is really crucial and I think particularly important for the American people is the manner in which Biden has accepted the risk that this will become a regional war that will drag in the United States into it by his refusal to push for a ceasefire. We have had 62 attacks against U.S. troops and bases in the Middle East since October 7th by Iraqi Syrian militias. Just as a point of comparison, between January 2021 and March 2023, more than two years, we had a total of 80 attacks. In six weeks, we have had 62 attacks. And any one of them may end up killing an American that could then, Mm. as a result, drag the United States into war that we absolutely have no interest in fighting. His primary concern, in my view, should be to make sure that this does not get enlarged into a regional war that drags the U.S. into it. That should be his number one priority. One of the things that uh, we've heard a great deal from some quarters about is, look, uh, the Palestinians aren't all innocent. Even my my friend Alan Dershowitz had a uh, column about this uh, today. And we hear something to the effect of, that uh, the fact that in Gaza they chose to elect the uh, elect Hamas to lead their government the last time they had elections. Now, I don't think that that in any way justifies destroying or killing innocent people or property any more than bin Laden's justification that we elected people that were carrying out policies that he didn't like justified his terrorism on American civilians. But one question that I have not gotten a good answer to so far is why haven't the people of Gaza or the people of the West Bank, for that matter, had elections in almost a generation? Uh, doesn't that sort of, um, I don't know, hurt the claim on the part of the Palestinians that um, they're looking for their own state when if they were looking to be a well-meaning members of the international community, they would do things like hold regular elections. Why haven't there been, and this is from my own ignorance, it's not a challenging question at all, why haven't there been regular elections in Gaza and in the West Bank for almost 20 years? So, uh, first of all, I think your your earlier absolutely correct. That type of a reasoning of saying that um, there's no innocent Palestinians because Hamas is there and <laughs> Back in 2006, almost 20 years ago, they won an election. That's exactly the thing that bin Laden used to justify terrorist attacks against America on 9-11 by saying, well, the American people elected uh, the U.S. government and he opposed U.S. Right. policies. And as a result, he thought that it was justified living in Syrian Americans. So the, the fact that that argument is used by some supporters of Israel, I think, is stunning. Uh, and I think, again, it shows how low... Um, uh, the moral standards of the conversation has become. 
Now, as to your question why there haven't been elections, first of all, because Hamas is a horrible organization. They won that election and then they have essentially refused to hold further elections. And a very large number of people in Gaza would love to get rid of them, but they don't have the capacity to do so. Not an uncommon phenomenon. We have tons of dictatorships throughout the world in which the population would love to get rid of them, but just simply don't have the, the means to do so. Uh, in, in the West Bank, the problem is a bit different. There, the, the PA story is actually very, very unpopular. But it is mostly from the interest of Israel and Western powers that we don't want to see elections because if the elections were, the PA would be voted out and probably mm. some other type of entity, uh, perhaps not Hamas, but something far more radical than the PA would get elected. I mean, it happened when Hamas got elected. It was because of the profound unpopularity of the Palestinian Authority and the fact that the U.S. really was pushing for the Palestinian Authority to get elected that really helped Hamas and they got elected as an anti-establishment vote. We've seen that phenomenon in the United States as well. But being a democratic organization, they have been repressing the people of Gaza ever since and prevented any future elections from being held. That does not make Palestinians in this, uh, uh, guilty of what Hamas did on October 7th, and it certainly doesn't uh, make it justified to kill the children of Gaza. Uh, no, I, I appreciate the clarification there. Talking with uh, Trita Parsi, he's with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Let me ask you about Iran, uh, Trita. One of the things that we heard almost immediately from critics of the president is um, that, look, he had freed up this uh, significant amount of money to go to Iran. And then right after this, Hamas, who is generally seen as being supported by the Iranian government, carries out this attack. And there have been claims that Iran either directly paid Hamas to do this or they at least gave them the uh, the, the go ahead, the moral go ahead to go ahead and and do this. How do you view Iran's culpability in this whole thing? And through the prism of hindsight, was it a mistake for the United States to unlock or unfreeze billions of dollars for the Iranians? Um, let me start off by saying that uh, the, the unfreezing of Iran's own money that was part of a hostage release in which um, Americans who had been wrongly imprisoned on fake charges of spying in Iran were released. That did not go to Iran. That money went to Qatar, to a bank account, and whenever the Iranians want to buy food and medicine, uh, items that are not sanctioned by the United States, the Qataris would first check that with the U.S., and if the U.S. approves it, they would be able to buy those things and send the material to Iran. The Iranians would never be able to even touch the money. So and have any control over it. So it has, frankly, nothing to do with what happened on October 7th. And again, from those those who are push, been pushing for more than 20 years for the United States to go to war with Iran, the degree to which facts don't matter in the arguments that they're putting forward is increasingly astonishing, I would say. Uh, on the issue of Iran's culpability, though, Iran definitely supports Hamas, definitely has helped train Hamas. I don't of money is coming to them from Iran because Iran, frankly, doesn't have much money. They used to get most of their money from Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's no longer the case, however. But Iran's direct involvement in this 
has not in any way, shape or form been proven. U.S. intelligence has no, not found any evidence of that. In fact, the evidence that the U.S. intelligence found was that the Iranians were completely taken by surprise by this attack. And, uh, Trita, you, you're cutting out a little bit there. I don't know if it's possible for you to move to a slightly better area. I promise I'll let you go in a, in a minute. I know it's uh, My apologies. I know it's uh, that's okay. Um, in line with the Iran situation, we've heard from a number of leading U.S. political figures, people like uh, Joe Lieberman, people like Lindsey Graham, uh, people like Nikki Haley, and others, uh, that it is time for the U.S. to seek some sort of military reprisal against Iran. Why would that be a poor idea? Because we already had war with Iraq, and Iran is uh, twice the size, three times the population, far much more difficult terrain, a much more sophisticated military. And if you like the Iraq war, you're going to love the Iran war. It was going to be, it will be devastating for the United States. Obviously, I'm sorry, I'm losing you, Trita. You're 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 cutting out a bit. I am so sorry. Um, the you know war with Iran would be absolutely devastating for the United States. The U.S. is much stronger than Iran, but the U.S. was far stronger than Iraq, and look what that led to. Or the Taliban, and after 20 years, we had to leave Afghanistan, and the Taliban are still in power, and we lost more than seven trillion dollars and thousands of American lives in the process. There's absolutely nothing to be gained. It's the same crowd that pushed for the U.S. to go into Iraq, to go to war with Afghanistan, that are pushing for the United States to go to war with uh, Iran as well. They have been proven wrong in every one of these foreign policy decisions, and they will be proven devastatingly wrong if they, God forbid, succeed in dragging the American people into yet another war in the Middle East. I've made some similar points when discussing why I think it's important not to attack Iran, and inevitably people will come to me and say, all right, well then what should Israel do? What should the United well, States... Israel. Uh, well, what Israel. should also the United States do? Because they are do seem in something of a partnership with Israel... Uh, on this, and should they, meaning Israel and the Americans, just sit back and let Iran encourage Hamas to do another attack in the future? What should both America and Israel do with respect to Iran? Well, first of all, you know, there's not been an attack on the United States. If there had been an attack on the United States, it's a different matter. Agreed. I mean, uh, agreed. I mean, and conflating the United States with some of its partners and allies is just going to drag us into an even larger number of wars. Uh, but moreover, the premise of the question was, as you put it, that, you know, if Iran continues to encourage Hamas to attack Israel, we have no evidence of that happening. Even the Israeli intelligence says that they don't have any evidence for that. And this is the problem. They're pushing for wars based on non-existing relationships and, and, and accusations with no factual uh, backing of it. That's exactly how we ended up in uh, invading Iraq, because of this lie that there were WMDs there. They're using the same formula to trick the American people into yet another war. President Biden had an op-ed this week in the Washington Post calling for a two-state solution. It would seem like in the aftermath of this attack and with this whole war, there's going to be a lot less of a likelihood of the Israelis ever agreeing to a two-state solution. What do you see as the most realistic path forward after this war ends, whatever it ends, and what's the best case scenario? Is a two-state solution still on the table in your view? Well, the two-state solution has not been pursued by the United States for quite some time. Um, it's been 
essentially dead, but we pretended that it's still there. And every once in a while, we use the slogan of a two-state solution without actually doing anything to uh, um, uh, materialize it. Um, and in fact, if you take a look at what has been happening for the last couple of years, it started on the Trump, was the pursuit of the Abram Accords and a measure of trying to integrate Israel uh, economically with other Arab countries in the region without addressing the Israeli-Palestinian issue. In fact, as Jared Kushner put it, by going beyond the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which meant that the Palestinians would have to accept uh, living indefinitely under occupation. And even the Biden administration pursued it because they were going much further than uh, Trump was doing because they wanted to get a normalization deal between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and were even willing to offer the Saudis security guarantees, which would mean that the United States would commit to send American troops to die for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. All of this without addressing the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And I think, I think it was a huge mistake. And, and unfortunately, as you know, many had predicted that it would eventually lead to the Palestinians returning to violence, no one had predicted that it would happen in this way that Hamas did it, and that it would be so atrocious. But nevertheless, it happened. I actually think that not in the medium term, but um, um, in the medium to the long term, this, we're more likely to go back to a more real pursuit of a two-state solution hmm. because the alternative is now very clear. We're going to see far more violence unless there is a two-state solution. I spoke to some uh, Israeli uh, security people immediately after a terrorist attack, and one of them said that one of the big um, myths had now been busted, an assumption on the Israeli side that they could keep 2.3 million Palestinians in occupation in Gaza indefinitely and that it would not be that costly. Every two or three years, there would be a little bit of violence, but it would be manageable. But it is absolutely not manageable for Israel to have that type of occupation if it's going to lead to attacks of this size uh, every two or three years. That's just simply not sustainable for any country. So, so I think even though it doesn't look likely right now, in some bizarre way, it actually has increased the likelihood of a two-state solution, um, uh, or a pursuit of it at least. And that's partly because prior to this, we weren't even pursuing it. We were trying to move beyond it. Trita, I'm just about out of time, and I know you probably want to go to bed, which I don't blame you for. But l let me ask you about y your use of the phraseology occupation in uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, whenever that comes up on this show, I'm deluged with listeners inclu who include a lot of experts uh, on this field. They always point out that in 2005, Israel withdrew all its security forces and settlements from the Gaza Strip. So they'll say, what occupation if Israel... Israel hasn't been in Gaza since 2005. If we're talking about the blockade from the Israelis and the Egyptians, they'll then say, well, if there's no blockade, they will use that to bring in weapons and other things to harm Israel. Why is it still an occupation when Israel withdrew from Gaza under Ariel Sharon? Because Occupation, according to international law, does not end until the entity is in control of its own borders. And each settlement and troops left Gaza. It's still viewed as being under occupation in the eyes of international law, by both the United States and Europe, because of the fact that 
Israel is in control of Gaza's border. Now, your argument or the argument they're putting forward is that they have to do that by as weapons will get in there, et cetera, et cetera, is an admission that they're in control of those borders. And as a result, it is still in the eyes of international law. And Final question, Trita, is about Iran and the sentiment against Iran. Uh, whenever Iran's talked about in the West, we frequently see images of folks burning American flags. We see images and hear about images of uh, folks ch- chanting death to America or death to Israel. Explain to our listeners why the Iranians have such a problem, if they do, if you even accept that premise, with the United States and with Israel. What's it to the Iranians if Israel continues to exist? Actually, amongst the population, the sentiment towards Israel have never been on par of what you have in Arab countries that uh, feel far greater affinity with the Palestinians. Now, the public opinion in Iran has tended to be far more sympathetic to the Palestinians than the Israelis. But what the population has tended to not be in agreement with is the manner in which the Iranian government has involved itself in that conflict with a view that that is an unnecessary uh, and excessive thing that the Iranian government has done, that it's not their fight to be involved in terms of supporting Hamas, Islamic Jihad, etc., etc. Uh, so in that sense, it's very much different from much of the, uh, uh, the rest of the Muslim world and certainly the Arab world. Iran and Israel were actually allies before the revolution, uh, uh, because of a sense of a shared threat, both from the Soviet Union and from uh, strong Arab nationalist countries such as Iraq under Saddam Hussein and Egypt under Nasser. Uh, and there is no historical enmity whatsoever between the Jewish people and the Persians. In fact, the history is actually very positive in the sense that uh, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, the founder of the Persian Empire, was the king who freed the Jews from the Babylonian as a man funded the rebuilding of the temple um, in Jerusalem and is the only non-Jew that has been elevated to the status of a prophet uh, in the Bible. So there's a very positive history of the peoples, but because of politics and geopolitics more than anything else, unfortunately, currently the situation is, is um, not as good as it should be. Trita Parsi, we're going to have to leave it there. I always learn something whenever we speak, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. If you want to check out any of Trita Parsi's work, you can go uh, to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You can also check out his own website. There's links to some of his books on there and uh, some of his op-eds. It's uh, very simply just Trita, T-R-I-T-A-P-A-R-S-I dot com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Restless Heart by Peter Cetera. This is a birthday bumper music selection from the lovely and talented Melissa Evanago. I've known, um, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. I just call her Melissa. I've known Melissa for a long time, uh, probably about 15 years. I met her when her sister was um, married to a close friend of mine. They're no longer married, unfortunately. But um, I was immediately impressed with her. She's uh, just somebody that's got a great sense of humor and a great uh, lust for life. And uh, she is somebody that does a lot of great work with children. And anybody that works with children is pretty important in my book. And uh, happy birthday, Melissa. And I'm hoping that... um, And she works with children that are on the spectrum as well, which uh, takes a special degree of patience. So... Uh, happy birthday, Melissa. I hope all your wishes come true today and always. As long as they're reasonable wishes. You can't have anything crazy coming true. All right. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. It is the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We're going to try and have a debate next hour on this, a civil debate, a civil discussion, which I hope will enlighten people and help people make their own mind about what they think occurred 60 years ago today. It's also Thanksgiving Eve. Now, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, close to 40 years ago, now I guess 35 years ago, this was the beginning. Uh, Traditionally, this was always the day of the Survivor Series, which was a great, at the time, WWF pay-per-view where, unlike a lot of other wrestling matches, you would have teams. You'd have teams of good guys fight with teams of bad guys, and it made for a lot of unlikely combinations, a lot of unlikely situations. They don't do it on Thanksgiving Eve anymore. I think they're going to do it Saturday, which, on the one hand, I'm glad that maybe I can sneak this on the television set for anybody that's lingering at uh, Carmine's birthday party on Saturday, But uh, I do miss that tradition of Thanksgiving Eve. To me, the Survivor Series was always so synonymous with Thanksgiving. And now they don't even really do the Survivor Series-style matches anymore. They do do um, a a War Games-style match. Fall Brawl was the fall pay-per-view that WCW used to do. So what they've done since the company's merged is they've sort of merged Fall Brawl and the Survivor Series. So it is what it is. I'm going to put it on Saturday night for whoever's around. All right, a lot of other stuff to get to as well. JFK, did Oswald act alone? Let's find out. Uh, we'll try and take some of your calls throughout the hour as well. 800-848-9222. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 